Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo, the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased and indeed honored to have with us Professor Jonathan Haslam. Professor Haslam is the George F. Kennan Professor in the School of Historical Studies at the Institute of Advanced Study at Princeton University. He is a fellow of the British Academy, a fellow of Corpus Christi College at Cambridge, and is Professor Emeritus at Cambridge in International Relations. And today we are discussing his latest book, The Spectre of War, International Communism and the Origins of World War II, published by Princeton University Press. Welcome, Professor. Thank you. Professor, what would you say is the thesis of your book? Well, the core of the book is an attempt to explain uh, Hitler's success in the 1930s and his ability to wage war and dominate Western Europe and then attack the Soviet Union. The explanation really lying in the role of communism and anti-communism in the minds of the statesmen of Western Central Europe, because Hitler declared himself ready to expunge communism from Europe. And in fact, this appeal to the minds of the conservative statesmen of Europe, for whom communism had become an absolutely major problem in the 1920s, and particularly for the British, because the British Empire had reached its peak and was beginning to succumb to collapse under the weight of communist international propaganda in the 1920s. So British statesmen like Neville Chamberlain, Prime Minister of Britain, were eager to see the end of communism in Europe. And they worried less about fascism. They saw fascism as an amorphous, unstable entity that would sooner or later collapse under its own weight, and that when it collapsed, the communists would be there to take over. What was the relationship in the period covered by the book of the common turn, the so-called Third International and Soviet foreign policy? Was Ophond the, the uh, former uh, a puppet of the latter? Uh, it's not quite so simple. When Stalin, who was really the last man of decision in the Soviet Union, when he decided to exert himself vis-a-vis -vis the Communist International, it had an effect. But Stalin was not one of those statesmen who rushed to decisions. Stalin had the habit of assuming that time would sort things out and that he would intervene at what he would regard as a decisive moment. And that meant that certain moments passed without him taking decisive action. And in the absence 
of his taking decisive action, old policies which had proved themselves to be worn out continued far longer than they should have done. And that's why, in a sense, part of the explanation why Hitler came to power in Germany was that the old policy was to keep the socialists out of power. That's what Comintern was doing. And it went on far too long when they should, in fact, have looked to the socialists as a helper against the rise of Hitler. How did the specter of communism influence, say, British or, for that matter, French policy in the Rhineland crisis of 1923? Oh, back in the 20s, the communism was still fresh and no one had a real sense of how many there were. I mean, these new communist parties were still coming into formation. And in the crisis of 1923, which was a holdover from the peace conference of 1919, the French and the Belgians took their armies into Germany to take the reparations they'd been granted by the Allies. And this upturned German politics and German statesmen decided just to let everything run. They printed money like no tomorrow, destroyed everyone's savings. In other words, if the French were going to take Germany, there was nothing of substance they were going to have. And obviously, chaos, economic crisis, these were opportunities for um, the Communist Party of Germany which really wasn't fit to take power, but the Russians thought they were, and that the Russians would help them, even to the point of sending the Red Army through Poland. So from the Western point of view, the British and the Americans in particular, this French intervention in Germany in 1923 was really jeopardizing the security of Europe and bringing communism to the Atlantic. In your account of Soviet foreign policy in the period covered by the book, would it be correct to say that you differ from historians such as Jeffrey Roberts insofar as you view the Russians, or I should say the Soviet Union, as equally culpable in the poor relations which Moscow had with the Western powers? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the, there was no meeting of minds. The world that Britain wanted was a status quo, capitalist world that allowed colonies to exist indefinitely. You know, a thousand-year empire, as Churchill dreamed of. The communists were determined to solidify the growth of communism in Soviet Russia and expand it in every direction, at any cost. Um, Trotsky, who was Stalin's rival, had been pushed out in 1929. And it's often assumed by many historians, wrongly, that Stalin really wasn't interested in revolution. He was, but not at every price. And only if the Red Army was there to assist it. In other words, Stalin's attitude to revolution was more conditional than Trotsky's. But they both agreed in principle and when Stalin invaded Poland in mid-September 1939 to take his slice of territory 
along with the Germans who had invaded at the beginning of the month. Trotsky praised Stalin's policy. He said Stalin's doing what Napoleon did, bringing revolution to the rest of Europe. Napoleon never really wanted to do so, but it was the only way of securing the conquest of Europe. In the same way, Stalin is forced to expand into Europe and by doing so, bringing communism. In other words, he's talking about grand historical forces of which Stalin is a dependency, not the chief actor. That's why I differ with these other historians. In your treatment of the Manchurian crisis, I noticed that you did not mention the Russo-Chinese War of 1929 as being a precursor of the crisis. Why not? Well, the Russians did not take the Chinese as seriously as they should have done. That's to say, Chiang Kai-shek in central China and Jiang Zolin, who was the northern warlord in China. Japan, it wasn't clear. It wasn't absolutely clear by 1929 that the Japanese were going to embark on a massive takeover of Manchuria, of northeastern China. For that to happen domestically inside Japan, the civilians had to succumb to the power of the military. And that took a couple of years. And not until we get to 1931 did we start to find that civilian statesmen in Japan stood in fear of assassination if they blocked the path of the military. In other words, Japan was not militarized in 1929. So 1929, Sino-Japanese, it wasn't really a war. It was a, I don't know what you call it in those days, uh, uh, a minor conflict, um, did not have behind it what the invasion of Manchuria had in September 1931. Why did Moscow decide upon a policy of appeasement vis-à-vis -vis Japan in the early 1930s? And substantively, did its policy differ very much from, say, that of the Anglo-American powers towards Japan? Yes, absolutely. Um, well, this is the impact of the process of industrialization of Russia and the forced collectivization of agriculture of Russia. So the industrialization of Russia, which really gets underway at the beginning of 1929, the pace is forced so fast that, they, that by 1931, they have bottlenecks everywhere in the economy. They don't have inflation as we know it because they didn't have a free market economy, but everything was in short supply. Railways were blocked up roads weren't adequate to transport goods. And then simultaneously, the forced collectivization of agriculture, which meant beating the peasant, killing the peasant in order to take the peasant's grain. Why? To take the grain in order to buy with it Western capital equipment from Sweden, Germany, and above all the United States. 
So in other words, to reindustrialize Russia, to put Russia on its feet as a major power, the dispossession of the Soviet peasant was seen as vital. Well, of course, yes, it was if you had that mindset. The trouble was the Red Army was the ranks of the Red Army. Who were the largest privates and non-commissioned officers in the Red Army? They were the sons of well-off peasants. Who were in the front line when Stalin collectivized? Well-off peasants. And in fact, the process of collectivization became so bloody. The secret police wasn't, wasn't enough in order to deal with the peasantry. They had to send the army in to clear out peasant villages and put them in railway cars and send them off to Siberia. And if they wouldn't do what they were told, shoot them on the spot. So young men in the Red Army, which wasn't large, were out there shooting people of their own kind. And mutiny was always on the cards from below within the Red Army. This is not the situation in which you want to stand up to the Japanese at the, at the opposite end of the country. There was one railway line leading through Siberia. It was an impossible task. So the only thing the Russians could do was to stand down and count on the fact that in the longer term, agriculture would be Sovietized and would be productive. Well, that was a mistake to the extent that they thought, but that industry would then re-equip the armed forces. And that did happen, that did work, so that by then they would be able to resist the Japanese. In the short term, they had to appease the Japanese. So in a sense, you're right. They they had to go along with a process of appeasement that the British and the Americans were conducting. But it has to say, it has to be said, the British and the Americans were extremely reluctant to follow this, particularly uh, the United States. But Herbert Hoover, like Stalin, was worried about what was going on at home. The depression had had a terrible effect in the United States. The British were in a mess. The Navy had mutinied. Uh, the British pound went off the gold standard. So never was the West weaker than at the point where the Japanese moved in to Manchuria and China. Why did Stalin favor, as you put it, quote, the extreme German nationalists, unquote, in the early 1930s? Yes, Stalin, <laughs> you have to say he was a very peculiar form of communist. He had a natural aptitude for hyperrealism in foreign policy. He was a sort of Richard Nixon of Soviet foreign policy. You know, no principle or scruple would stand in his way when he made up his mind. The point about the right in German politics was it related to Russia's overall objective, its primary objective, short of resisting invasion from the West, which it kept expecting, was to keep the West divided. So you've got to keep the Germans at the throats of the French and the British at the throats of both of them and the Americans at the throats of everybody else. 
And the way and the key thing first was to keep the French at the throats of the Germans. Now, the Social Democrats in Germany, who had been dominating Germany up to the mid 20s and then in coalition up to 1930, and then even after the Catholic Rhinelanders controlled Germany from 1930 under Chancellor Brüning, they were supported by Social Democrats. So the abiding policy, the consistent policy was, we can't fight with the West. We can't fight the Americans. We can't fight the British. We can't fight the French. We have to come to terms over reparations. We don't want another French invasion. We have to compromise. So this spirit of compromise from the Soviet point of view held out the threat and the danger that the powers of Western Europe would come together on a common platform underwritten by American money. And as everyone knew, American money was extremely hostile to the Soviet Union. Uh, the, the United States did not recognize the Soviet Union. It still recognized the old regime. Not until Roosevelt comes in in 33 did that policy change. So the priority for Stalin was, how do I stop Western Europe coming together? Well, I back the most extreme right-wing chauvinistic xenophobic forces in Germany that are there. And of course, amongst them were the Nazis. They weren't that big until 1930, and certainly till 1932. And he thought, what were the Nazis? They're just a, a bunch of hoodlums, like the cabbage kings in Arturo Ui in um, Brecht's play, The Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui, gangsters like the people out of Chicago in the 30s, we can deal with them. They don't have any coherent policy. They're all over the place. And Hitler just seems to be uh, a rabble rouser. No one took Adolf Hitler seriously as a statesman, as a potential statesman, until he became one. Only Trotsky and Litvinov, who was Stalin's commissar for foreign affairs, only those two took him seriously. Why? Because they were Jewish because it was a core feature of Hitler's line to be anti-Bolshevik and anti-Jewish. And as far as he was concerned, they were the same thing. What was uh, Moscow's reaction to the proposed Austro-German Customs Union in 1931? Was it in favor or was it opposed? No, the, yeah, there were, a, the policy on Austria, you have to remember at the end of the war, Everybody expected that what they called German Austria would become a part of a larger Germany. This was seen as inevitable because, you know, they speak the same language. The Austrians had lost their empire with Hungary, and now it was obvious that they would get together with Germany. In fact, it was obvious to many Germans and many Austrians. So this was viewed as somewhat natural. Of course, the French were the first to oppose it uh, because that would enlarge German power at the expense of French power. Remember, the French had a problem making babies from the end of the 19th century. And war in those days was counted in terms of infantry numbers, as you saw in World War I, where vast numbers of them were wiped out on the front. 
they weren't yet fully alive to mechanization. So add Austria to Germany and you really have a powerhouse in Central Europe. And remember, France was allied to countries on the other side of Austria, like Czechoslovakia. What would happen to those alliances if Austria lost its independence? From the Russian point of view, it didn't matter. Anything that antagonized these powers was a good thing. So, in other words, attempted unification of Austria and Germany, to which the British were totally indifferent, but the French were hysterical, was a good thing from Stalin's point of view. It caused chaos, it wouldn't work, um, and Russia had nothing to lose by it. Later on, when you have the Anschluss in 1938, in March 1938, this is quite a different thing, which is when Germany is armed to the teeth and ready to march east. So the Anschluss with Austria in 38 is the prelude to going east. This is this was a totally different matter. And the most difficult thing, I think, for people to understand about the politics of the 1930s is how rapidly everything changes. You you could you could go to bed one night with one situation and wake up the following morning with an entirely different situation so that even the best politicians of Europe found themselves always behind events, always too slow. Only Hitler was ahead of events because he was driving events after 1933. Substantively, did uh, the Soviet Union's policy vis in the uh, Abyssinian crisis of 1935-1936 differ um, from that of the Western powers? Well, it was bound to differ because the key power for the League of Nations policy on sanctions against Italy was Britain. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't within Russia's power or influence to actually make the policy of holding Italy to account for invading Ethiopia and East Africa. And the British were determined not to go to the wall on this one. And they held back from putting into effect the only sanctions that could work, which were oil sanctions. Only that could grind the Italian armies to a halt. And that was the one thing they wouldn't do because they feared that that might jeopardize the stability of Italy. And if you jeopardize the stability of Italy, there was a man in prison held by Mussolini called Antonio Gramsci. And he was regarded as so dangerous, they had to do what they could to keep him silent and to allow his natural ill health to follow its course to his premature death. Italy, in other words, shouldn't be punished too much by the West because it would go communist. This was always in the in the back of their minds. So from the Russian point of view, there was very little they could do except, you know, declare that they were against aggression, uh, that Italy should be punished. But on the other hand, they had no power really to 
influence British policy or French policy on that question. And the French were secretly pro or not so secretly pro Mussolini as well. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Why did Moscow decide to intervene in the Spanish Civil War in 1936? Was its motivation primarily ideological in nature, or where there's an aspect of realpolitik in the policy? That depended who you were. Um, from the point of view of Litvinov, who was Stalin's commissar of foreign affairs, he didn't believe any of the countries of Western Europe really were headed for revolution after 1919. So. From his point of view, the only value of standing firm on the independence of the Spanish Republic was one of reasons of state, of statism. Now, Litvina was a minority voice in the Soviet Communist Party. And during the period when Stalin was industrializing and collectivizing Russia in the early 30s, he met with opposition. And he met with opposition from fundamentalists, fundamentalist communists, who believed in a way that Trotsky embodied their views rather better than Stalin's. So rather, you can take the image of Stalin that Robert C. Tucker used to take, that Stalin sat at a great piano, and when he pressed the keys, events happened in Russia automatically. Well, only a political scientist could think the world worked that way. It was completely wrong. Stalin always felt at his back, behind him, people were only too ready and willing to grab his seat and take it and kill him in the process if he gave them the opportunity. So in other words, um, Stalin approached the issue of the civil war in Spain from the point of view of oh, what does the party think? And the party in general felt that this popular front in Spain, which was backed by the Communist Party under instructions from Comintern, had to be supported. If it wasn't supported, then fascism would take over Spain as it took over Italy, as it was taking over Greece, as it had taken over Germany. From a realpolitik point of view, Stalin looked at the map and said, well, look at France. Britain doesn't want an alliance with France. Britain is standing offshore, holding its hands in the air, reluctant to do anything. The United States is not interested in intervening in Europe. France neighbors Germany. Germany is rearming rapidly. France is next door to Italy. Italy wants to control the Mediterranean. If fascism takes power in Spain and allies with Mussolini and Hitler, then France is almost surrounded, unless you consider the Atlantic Ocean something you want to fall into. So in other words, for reasons of realpolitik and reasons of international revolutionary solidarity. Intervention in Spain was necessary. So in other words, it was a confluence of two interests. Those who supported Spain's cause 
amongst the liberal left in Britain and the United States and those who fought in the brigades, the international brigades. Many of them believed they were just sustaining parliamentary democracy in Spain, that they weren't fighting for communism, even though the communists were lead, had created the international brigades and were leading them. But actually, they were completely wrong because the Spanish Republic had uh, was a very weak entity and driven from the left by the far left to take radical measures in the countryside that completely alienated the status quo, alienated the church, alienated the army, alienated landowners. And if even if you're trying to do a revolution very slowly in a sort of Fabian socialist sort of way, which is what the Italian socialists thought they were doing, you really have to you really have to take your time. You really have to win over a few people on the other side. But they felt they couldn't. They felt that if they moved to the right, they would just be displaced by people further left. In other words, just as Stalin, in some sense, was hostage to his own fanatics in Russia, so too were the leaders of the Spanish Republic held hostage by the far left. It's it, so you ask the question, you know, how could you replay this whole scenario to avoid the Russians going in, to avoid this, to avoid? Actually, you couldn't. Everybody, everybody felt they were acting by necessity, that they had no choice in the matter. This is how tragedies happen and international tragedies in particular, in particular, how they happen too. How much of an independent actor in the making of Soviet foreign policy the pre-1939 period was Litvinov? Yes, Litvinov, um, it helps in Russia, or it helped in Russia nowadays probably too, to have tremendous physical courage. Litvinov was a very bulky chap, and he was a Jew. He wasn't able to go to university because he was Jewish. So he had to go into the army and got a sort of quartermaster's job where he could sit and read and write and think. That's how he went forward and then joined the revolutionary movement. Litvinov had no fear at all. During the late 30s, when so many people were being executed at the whim of people who didn't like them, Litvinov used to sleep in his full set of clothes and he had a revolver under the pillow. If he didn't get the revolver to shoot himself before the secret police came in to drag him away, at least he'd be wearing his clothes. He had a horror of certain forms of personal contact. I don't want to go into his sex life, but he had a, had a horror of indignity. And the idea of being seized in his pajamas was just um, frightening to him. But he wasn't really frightened of anything. And, and this was the way to deal with Stalin, was actually not to be frightened of anything. It was the only real way of surviving. And Stalin understood this, took it seriously. Um, now, the influence came from the fact that in 1930 to 31, when Comintern was playing around with the German Communist Party to stop it launching a revolution, 
And Stalin was de facto encouraging the right wing in German politics. Um, Litvinov predicted in 1931 that Hitler would end up in power with the Nazi party. That's the first point. And because he read German, which Stalin didn't, and Molotov, his rival, tried to but couldn't, like many of us in the past, this left Stalin with a dilemma. Litvinov said to him, look, the Nazis are going to take power. And if you could only read Hitler's testament in Mein Kampf, you'd know that his entire objective of the entire campaign will be to come for us, to go to Russia and kill us all and colonize it with Germans. This seemed a bit far-fetched, but in 1933, Hitler comes to power, just as Litvinov predicted. Not only that, as soon as he comes to power, he wipes out the German Communist Party within three months, as Litvinov had predicted. So Litvinov seemed pretty far-sighted. Not only that, Litvinov had lived in exile before the revolution in Hampstead in North London, where he used to wander around the uh, pastry shops thinking about what else he could buy to eat in his spare time. But Litvinov was the trusted man of the revolution. He was the money bags. He held, he held the money for Lenin for the revolution. So he was really a solid piece of work. And because he lived in London, he understood the British. One of the senior officials in the Foreign Office had taken Russian lessons from him. So he had a, a line into British society that others didn't. And since Britain, for all its weaknesses, was the major power of Europe, other than Germany, this mattered. So you can say that Litvinov never had power in the Soviet regime, but he had massive influence. And he had this unfortunate habit of being right. And when he was thrown out in the spring of 1939, he predicted it was all going to go wrong. And when they signed the Nazi-Soviet pact, he said this was a mistake, a disaster. And then when Hitler overrun, overran Western Europe, he said, I told you so. And then he started saying, well, Hitler's now going to attack us. And they said, no, 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 he wouldn't dare attack us. He's too busy. He hasn't, uh, hasn't invaded Britain yet. And what about the United States? And of course, he was right again. That's why Stalin kept him alive. He thought he might need him in future if he had to come to terms with the British and the Americans, which, of course, he did. And he ended up as ambassador in Washington, where he had a fabulous time. And his role was really to try to keep the Americans on side, which he did. Uh, Roosevelt really took to this man, and the Russians were very successful in blindsiding the Americans through the war. Would it be true to say that you disagree with those like Sean McMeekin or Yergi Hochban, who contend that Moscow is not sincerely interested in collective security in opposing Hitler, but merely looking for an opportunity to expand the borders of the Soviet Union and to come to some sort of agreement with Hitler. These weren't alternatives. These weren't alternatives. Statesmen don't get up in the morning and say, hmm, 
you know, I should be nasty to the French today, you know, and then get up another morning and say, you know, what should I do about the EU or United States? You know, foreign policy is not a sort of smorgasbord of open choices, as these people imagine. I think this is... Uh, there's a complete lack of realism in these sort of assessments. It's full of prejudice. They haven't read the sources. You have to read the Russian sources. The Russians have released in the last two years and declassified vast amounts of material. When I found that this material was now available on the web in photocopy form, you can see the photographs of the documents as they were they match up very well to what they had published 30 years ago, which I used when I first worked on the subject. And Yishi Hochman and others denied, oh no, this is, they're all forgeries, there's nothing real here. I'm afraid they're real. And other historians who have written on the subject can't read Russian and haven't read these sources. One just has to read the archival sources on all sides and not make things up out of prejudice or, you know, to make a sensation. What, in your opinion, were the roots of the appeasement policies of British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain? Yes, Neville Chamberlain is one of the most fascinating British politicians, I think. I think he's more interesting than Winston Churchill who gets, I think, per man, you know, Winston Churchill's biographies, the amount of biographies, are, you know, it's like Lenin's works, 54 volumes, God knows. And everybody's going to write a new one uh, based on the old ones, if they've read them, if they've had time. Um, whereas Neville Chamberlain, I think we have one dreadful semi-official biography and other people who started on a biography of him thinking the best of him have stopped halfway through because they suddenly realized he wasn't the man they thought he was he was a very complex man like like well i was going to say like mrs thatcher mrs thatcher was a very complex woman with male characteristics mental male characteristics of the old school and now, Chamberlain was a hardline realist, and he interpreted realism in terms of what are British interests. Well, British interests are obviously the opposite of Russian and communist interests, because what happened in the 1920s, the Russians did their damnness to destroy the British Empire. What are they trying to do now? They're trying to take over Europe. So, in other words, Yishi Hockman's books and McKeekin's books are the Neville Chamberlain view of Russia, that the Russians are going to get the better of us. Now, there are different ways of interpreting what one should therefore do, whether one works with the Russians to trip them up, work with Litvinov to trip up Molotov to make Stalin see there were reasonable alternatives, or whether one just opens a broad front against them. And so Chamberlain's mindset was very much dictated by the experiences of the Baldwin government in the 1920s, dealing with the Russians really interfered in the general strike in 1926. They subsidized striking miners. They paid Chinese revolutionaries to shoot 
the British in China and destroy Britain's trade with China, Britain's second largest trading partner at the time. Why should you trust them? Why should you trust them at all? And British secret intelligence, the MI6, was terrible on Russia in the 1930s. They had no inside knowledge whatsoever. They were also pretty terrible on Germany. I'm not sure whether where they were any good at all, but certainly on Russia, they knew absolutely nothing. So they resorted to hypothesis and guesswork. And unfortunately, this hypothesis and guesswork took place within an anti-Bolshevik mindset. So Chamberlain's fears were always being confirmed by the head of MI6. So they were sort of driven in one direction. And Chamberlain never really understood foreign affairs at all. He'd never lived abroad. He was terrified of flying. Uh, I suppose a lot of people are, and particularly in those days. So flying to see Hitler was a really scary thing, not seeing Hitler, but flying to get there. And then the prospect of flying back. Um, Chamberlain was a paradox. He didn't believe in the security of Europe. The one section of the British Armed Forces, which was not given a proper budget to develop in the 1930s, was the army. How on earth could you ever conceive of Britain coming to France's aid against Germany without an army? I mean, in 1914, an army was scrabbled together. But a lot of those people were dead. You're going to scrabble another one together to go to France's aid? No, Chamberlain was determined Britain should not repeat World War One. What did that mean? It meant implicitly German hegemony in Europe was more acceptable than war. And if that hegemony of Europe began and extended to the east, ooh, so much the better. Who is going to keep the Russians out? Who is going to keep communism down? Adolf Hitler. So, well, we're not, a, we're not going to discredit ourselves too much, but we'll just sort of stand back and see how the game plays out. This was his view. And most unfortunately, Stalin had a good set of spies in London and knew entirely what that game plan was. This was a disaster. This was a tragedy. And Churchill warned that this is what was going to happen, just like Litvinov. The only two people who were right, other than Trotsky, who, who was assassinated in 1940, about the playing of this game, which way this game would go in the 1930s, were Churchill and Litvinov. Litvinov was thrown out of office in the spring of 1939, and Churchill wasn't allowed into office until after war had, done, had begun. And then when he was allowed in office, they tried to keep him away from anything too delicate. And then when Chamberlain failed in his policies because Hitler overran Europe, Western Europe, Lord Halifax, who was foreign secretary, was scheming to prevent Churchill becoming prime minister the one man who'd been right. So you can see that all was not well with British politics. That's how you ended up with a statesman like Chamberlain running the country instead of Churchill. There was a book of interviews with uh, Molotov, in, which came out in, the, in uh, the late 1980s, 
And in that book, which I'm quite sure you're familiar with, uh, at the beginning there was a quote from him that uh, his primary goal as foreign minister was uh, something akin to, quote, expand the frontiers of the fatherland, unquote. Hmm. Uh, would you regard that as actually being accurate in terms of his policies and when he assumed office in the spring of 1939, or was it merely a post facto ra rationalization of things which occurred? Oh, no. Uh, m there are a few people in this world who are fully mature, you know, at a very young age. Molotov was amongst them. Mature in his judgments, mature in his ignorance, that was Molotov. So, yes, the expansion of the motherland, actually, Rodina, rather than fatherland in Germany. And uh, that was exactly his view. Anything that expanded the motherland was acceptable by however means you did it. And in that, he shared the view with Stalin. But he was actually prepared to go a little further than Stalin in doing this, to take more risk to doing this than Stalin was. Stalin had sort of high levels of inhibition and caution within him because Stalin had more of a world view. He had, he remember, alone received all the top information. Molotov received what Stalin allowed Molotov to see. So in the spring of 39, when Molotov was brought in to substitute for Litvinov because they hated one another. So if you dumped Litvinov, you necessarily emplaced Molotov. He carried out the policy that Stalin and the Politburo agreed, which was keep trying to make negotiations with the British and the French. And if they fail, then we'll see what we do. So Molotov's conduct of foreign policy from the spring of 39 was really, it was different from Litvinov because Litvinov was a nicer chap and uh, believed that ambassadors had brains in their heads to make decisions. And Molotov demanded that everything be sent by telegram and that he and Stalin decide everything. But in fact, the policy line was still, can we do a deal with the British? because Germany was running amok. But when the Germans came in and started making offers, at that point, Molotov and Stalin are of one mind that if the British are not going to come through with a proper alliance, with men and munitions for us to keep the Germans out of the rest of Eastern Europe, then we have to come to terms with the Germans. At that point, Molotov and Stalin diverge completely from um, from uh, Litvinov's point of view on Britain and France. But people like Voroshilov, who was in charge of the armed forces in the Politburo, always really believed that Britain and France were the allies to have. But you, it's all very well saying, you know, I like the pretty girl at the other side of the room. But if she doesn't like you, <laughs> nothing's going to happen. So in a sense, Voroshilov's favouring of Litvinov's line 
uh, was a complete waste of time. Once again, circumstances. We ask the question, well, why was Molotov in charge? Why would Stalin put someone like Molotov in charge? Because circumstances were pushing in that direction. Molotov somehow believed that the future of Russia lay with Germany, just as Lenin had believed that if you could fuse the technocracy of Germany and the brain power and the economy with the sheer guts of Russia and its raw materials, you'd be unbeatable. This would be, you know, Mackinder's dream of the mainland. You know, this is the world island that would be unbeatable. The United States would never even be able to stand against it. This was a this was a vision that was very dangerously expansionist. Molotov was a dangerous expansionist and he wasn't afraid of admitting it. And his grandson is one of Putin's camp, one of Putin's advisors. This, this mindset carries through. It doesn't stop. What would you then say was the primary motivation for Stalin to sign the pact with Hitler in the summer of 1939? Well, um, there weren't many pacts available. <laughs> the British weren't serious about signing a pact. They sent, instead of sending uh, a foreign secretary or the chief of staff, they sent a bunch of senior military people on a very, very slow boat through the Baltic that took an endless time to arrive in order to uh, negotiate without even any credentials. They didn't even bring any credentials along with them. So the French were sort of mildly appalled, but they'd been used to the British. The British always let them down as far as they were concerned. So the pact was in default of anything else. If you knew, as they did from intelligence sources, that Hitler was determined to invade Poland at the beginning of 19, September 1939, what were you going to do? Sit back and wait till they arrive on the Brest border? Well, that would be a crazy thing to do. They might not stop. So you had to come to terms with Hitler in some way. You could say, this is only temporary. People always do this. They say, well, it's only temporary. Don't worry. <laughs> It'll work out. When, in fact, they, they just have no idea what to do. So the Nazi-Soviet pact, which was supposedly a non-aggression pact, but was, in fact, a de facto alliance by which they divided Eastern Europe between one another. That was not just to keep the Germans at bay. That was to expand the borders of the Soviet Union, to make the Soviet Union more powerful. If you took the view of the Nazi party, which Stalin and Molotov and many others did in Russia, that it might look strong, they might talk big. But remember, one of the main sources of recruitment to the Nazi party was the German Communist Party. A lot of German communists in the Great Depression who were so disillusioned that Comintern didn't encourage them to launch a revolution in Germany and provide full employment, 
decided the Nazis might do it instead. Well, they did provide full employment. You might have to wear a brown shirt, a black shirt, or do time in the Wehrmacht, but at least you had a job. You weren't out in the street. So now the Russians regarded these Germans as inherently good Germans. They just had bad leaders and they had to mouth this unpleasant philosophy. Remember that the extermination camps, this appalling, absolutely appalling genocide that was committed by Hitler hadn't yet happened. So people guessed, well, they had people locked up in camps, you know, but then the Russians had a lot more locked up in camps. So, you know, people were saying, well, you know, so what's the difference? You know, they wear these funny uniforms, they goose step, you know, which the Russians didn't start to do till after the war. God knows why. Um, they're strange, but maybe we can work together. And the Germans needed Russian raw materials for war. They needed oil. They needed all these metals the, the Russians had. And the Russians wanted German technology for warfare, particularly for submarine warfare. You know, sights, glass, mirrors, binoculars, all the sort of stuff. And German aircraft were now better than Russian aircraft. So they wanted some of those as well. So they thought, well, we can do a deal on this. So. In other words, the signing of the Nazi-Soviet pact wasn't simply a defensive move for which there was no alternative at all. It was signed with greater conviction that there was something more to be obtained that was indefinite. And who knows, if the Germans attack France and the French are as strong as some say, and the British come in as well, and the United States backs Britain, well, Germany's going to win. So the Russian assessment was it's likely going to be a stalemate. And for Stalin, that's great. You know, a stalemate between Germany and the Western powers. Then Russia can throw its weight into the game and alter the balance. Russia could hold the balance of Europe. That was the idea particularly if the United States stayed back on the other side of the Atlantic. This was the dream. So the dream, even in signing the pact, was an expansionist dream. There was no view of withdrawal. They were moving forward and they would continue to move forward. So in the summer of 1940, while the, while the Germans had taken over Western Europe and were taking Paris, what did Stalin do? He not only demanded those bits of territory in southeastern Europe provided for in the Nazi-Soviet pact from Romania, he wanted more. He pushed for more. And Hitler's reaction was, oh, so that's what their game is. In other words, the same as his. And uh, so the invasion of the Soviet Union, the timetables were rolled out. And the inevitable happened in the summer of 1941. To ask a hypothetical question, what do you think would have been the Soviet reaction if the uh, Anglo-French had indeed bombed Baku 
in January, February 1940? Well, um, they certainly would have been surprised because they had the plans and um, they were drawn up in Paris. Everything in Paris leaked. It was like a large watering can. And they also had copies that had reached London. So, you know, Stalin's desk uh, was like the uh, French prime minister's desk plus the British prime minister's desk, um, all of it arrayed in front of him. Um, but the point was these plans were didn't please everybody in London and Paris, and they leaked into the Daily Mail in the press. So they, you know, that scotched them completely because, you know, when you're sort of losing a war, as it were, in many senses, on one front, do you start opening another war on another front? Britain nearly declared war on Russia to support Finland in 1939 to 40. And this was another absurdity. And uh, Chamberlain's secretary and advisors all thought that was a much better idea. I mean, we don't like war, but if we have to have a war, let's have a war against Russia. There's a there's a nice legitimate sort of war to have. <laughs> Even if the British had so botched their rearmament that they weren't really capable of it at all. Um, so how were the British going to bomb Baku? They were going to use the aeroplanes that they had in the Middle East. Remember, the British bombed Iraq in the 1920s. The British policed Iraq with gas bombs in the 1920s. And they were going to use those sort of aircraft to come in over Baku and uh, bomb the Azeri um, oil industry. Well... You know, nowadays they talk about precision bombing. You know, anybody who's looked at the detail of any American campaign since 1941 knows that the two terms, precision and bombing, just don't go together. You know, uh, <laughs> bombing from on high um, you, you've no idea. I mean, you might hit something within a mile or two. Now you can use drones, but that's a very different matter. Precision assassination by bomb, but from the air. But in those days, so in other words, what I'm saying is if they had tried to bomb Baku from the Middle East, they would have, first of all, what would the Russians have done? They would have unleashed revolutionary warfare and tribesmen in Iran and Iraq against the British and the French in Lebanon and Syria. They would have failed to wipe out the oil industry and they would have just further alienated the Russians and appalled the Americans. So it, you know, it's, uh, there's a reason why it never happened. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? The one thing I want people to take away from is that this history matters, getting it right, and that ideas matter. You need to understand international relations 
according to the way men's minds, I say men because there weren't any women around at that time, men's minds worked. And you have to take them seriously. You can't go around conducting international relations on the basis of the fact that everybody is a reasonable, rational, liberal businessman, which is the sort of mindset in London. And that only in and anybody who disagrees with this mindset is just sort of mad and impossible to deal with. So you have to engage with dictators in a realistic way. And as the Romans said, you know, in the past, well, the lesson from the past was, you know, if you want peace, arm for war. And I don't mean buy very expensive toilet seats in the Pentagon and as the British do, build a tank that nobody can drive around in because it's suffocating and couldn't hit anything. So I, I don't mean by that that what we call armaments today, uh, rearming today makes any sense. So the message is really keep your eyes clear, take beliefs seriously and assess your enemies or likely enemies with some respect for the way they see the world. And when you look today at China or Iran, you know, don't assume they're like you. Work out how they think and what they want. On that observation, Professor, I would like to thank you very much for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel of New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Hasbun. Thank you very much for the opportunity.